You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We've all heard about financial planners. After all, Chris is one. Uh, I recommend everybody who wants to invest should consider engaging a planner so they break out of their own thought bubble, make sure they get their structuring right, avoid pitfalls and consider all the options that could get them to where they want to be financially. But what about property planners? There's less of them on the ground or mortgage strategists. What the hell is a strategist anyway? What's the difference between a strategist and a broker? Do we really need a mortgage strategy? Aren't we just after the cheapest rates? Now, I think you know where I'm heading. With big decisions that commit us for decades, where hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, are involved, where opportunity costs can unravel our plans without us even realising, we need expert advice from a number of different quarters. In this episode, we pick the brains of David Johnson, who happens to be both a property planner and a mortgage strategist. David is the Managing Director of Property Planning Australia, a co-host of the property podcast, the property planner, Byron Professor with Kate Bacos and Peter Koulzos. That is a very long name for a podcast, by the way. Sure is. Um, <laughs> both, both Kate and Peter have actually been on this podcast before, so you're, the, you're completing the, tri, the trifecta or the triumvirate. Uh, David is also the author of multiple books, including How to Succeed with Property to Create Your Ideal Lifestyle, which he is kindly making available as a giveaway for listeners. So keep tuned in order to find out how you can get your copy and Property for Life Using Property to Plan Your Financial Future. David and his team are passionate about educating and empowering professionals and families to create their own personalised property plan, mortgage strategy and money management system and have been doing so since 2004. He's also fiercely independent in terms of his advice uh, and his company calls what he calls pure planning, means they don't earn any dollars from buying or selling property or selling any investment insurance or super products. Fee for service, it's a model I certainly believe in. Thank you very much for joining us, David. My pleasure. Good Boy, to see you, David. Great to see you again, Chris. Uh, and I mean, I guess for all our listeners here, a um, bit of backstory, David and I used to work together. I used to work for his business, Property Planning Australia. Um and I mean, it's a bit of a thank you, really. I mean, a lot of what I know around mortgages and um, the importance of um, structuring mortgages the right way does come from this man. So I uh, thank you for all that. My pleasure, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, it's one of my frustrations. I've been trained to look at mortgages uh, a little bit differently than most mortgage brokers. And, um, you know, it comes down to what I guess something called the property plan, the thought process behind what the property plan is, um, you know, and David's probably the guy who invented it, I guess. So what to you is the property plan and, and why is it so important rather than just go and get a mortgage? Well, the property plan 
is essentially creating a long-term plan for life's most valuable asset class. Mm -hmm. And people jump into that decision with, I think often, not enough uh, pre-work and analysis and research, not only on the property market and the asset class, but right back to starting with your goals, mm. your cash flow, um, how do you manage money, how much money you're trapping, how much setting money goals, mm. how much money you're then going to put towards a property, uh, what is that next property decision going to be? Is it going to be a home or an investment property? Mm. If you go one way or the other, because it's the only asset class we live in, which adds a whole level of complexity that I think is not talked about enough. Mm. Uh, I think the home buyer component of property buying is is really neglected. And so mm. that's something mm. that we focus on in every one of our property plans. Mm. So... Um, you move, you move, really, it, you know, there's a series of decisions that lead to the final selection of the property. And when I was a young whippersnapper, Chris, as a 24-year-old and came into this fledging mortgage broking industry that no one knew what a mortgage broker was uh, 20 years ago, um, I started to realise my clients wanted to learn about how to make better property decisions and I couldn't help them. And then I discovered there was nowhere you could go for independent property advice. And I found that pretty surprising. And I set up Property Planning Australia 15 years mm -hmm. ago and have been on a journey of discovery in many regards mm -hmm. ever since trying to build a, a great, unique product and service for Australians. So, you know, let's say um, comparing your business to a traditional mortgage broker, What's the kind of, you know, and obviously not all mortgage brokers are the same, but, you know, a transactional type of mortgage broker is there to get the rate and that's what they think they are. Comparing that service to your service, what do you think the major differences are in terms of what you provide? I think we start with analysing what people want to achieve in life and then work backwards from there. Everything we do is to live a better life. And I think we make poorer decisions when we lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. You know, this morning I, I work from home on Wednesdays. My highlight so far today has been taking my five-year-old and three-year-old sons to, to kinder and preschool, mm -hmm. you know. And so we start with looking at those aspects and work downwards from there. And I think it, so often we start with the end part in mind, whether it's buying a property, whether it's an interest rate. Mm -hmm. And so with mortgages in particular, you know, you can manage risk through your mortgage. It's the most expensive um, cost in our lives, mm. yet, you know, we only focus on small components of it. Mm. Your buffers you can set up, how you manage your cash flow. You can set up offset accounts that allow you to set up money management systems that interact with your mortgage, redraw. You can optimise your tax deductions. You can optimise your ability to hold future properties in the future as you accumulate yeah. more properties, but you can only put... You can only do those things and set them up and optimise your future opportunity if you do them early on mm. and you have to have a long-term view. So, <clears throat> yeah, they're, they're, they're some of the ways. It's, it's a danger. I mean, I think about my own starting property, you know, the first property I bought back when I was 27 and 
in mistakes that I know that I've made and through lack of advice, lack of understanding that there might have been somewhere to go and get advice. There may or may mm. not have been. I don't know. But mm. at the time it wasn't – it's certainly even now I think predominantly it's not considered that you need to get advice because everyone just thinks around particularly by their own home. Well, we should all just be able to do that. But there are mm. so many aspects, as you mentioned, the whole chain of events that leads up to the point at which you might sign a contract – um, all those little mm. decisions that get made along the way, yeah. um, you know, and then afterwards while you own that property, before you actually decide to upgrade or renovate or whatever, the, the entire life of, of an individual or a couple or um, as they deal with property in one, one form or another is 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 littered, yeah. if you like, littered, <laughs> that's even right, the word, but littered with decisions, little decisions mm, that actually um, often we don't understand the implication of. So mm. it's it's interesting that you sort of saw that so far ago and realised nobody had anywhere to go for advice because I guess people think, well, I'll go, I'll go to a real estate agent. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's what people thought mm. back in the day and I think, you know, mortgage broking where I started after I left a bank can be pretty boring if you mm. don't actually try and explore all these kinds of mm. things. So, mm. you know, it actually is about your personal um, development, trying to understand all these different ways that you can create wealth and manage your risk mm-hmm. through your mortgage beyond an interest rate and just understanding what products do. Mm-hmm. You sort of been, you call yourself a property planner and a mortgage strategist, and yet in this conversation thus far, those two things seem to have been very melded together. Is there a distinction between the two? Yeah, there is. So we've got our independent property advice, which is pure fee-for-service, mm-hmm. and then we have our strategic mortgage brokers. So although they focus on mortgage strategy in detail, they also do mortgage broking. Mm. But one of the things that I put in place about three or four years ago was a fee-for-service option right. for our uh, mortgage strategy service. So if someone wanted to just pay a fee and get the mortgage strategy, We've created a very detailed mortgage strategy report that we provide for people. Every Everything we provide to our clients we've built mm. ourselves. Um, then people can pay a fee for it and then go and select the lender themselves and that mm. is to ensure that we remain true to our goal of being fiercely independent. Yeah, but they're, they're very distinct, different areas mm. of the business, the, the property advice and the and the mortgage broking. So what, what are some of the um, common traps that people get themselves into with mortgages that you know, they just go and select a lender and just didn't know what they didn't know and then a few years later they go, whoops, I didn't realise I shouldn't have done mm. that. I think they're, one of the main uh, mistakes people make is, particularly when they're investing, is not structuring their loans the right way to optimise their tax deductions. And I think a lot of the mistakes can um, feed into that. Mm. So... They own multiple properties. They've mixed debts together, so they're not maximising their tax deductions. Mm, yeah. They uh, want to keep an existing home when they're upgrading and they have paid down a lot of the debt, so they haven't optimised their tax deductions. Mm. They also haven't optimised mm. their savings to go towards a future home, so mm. they're going to have more debt on the future home or that less of a case to be yeah. able to keep that first property. You, you would have seen a lot of mistakes, Chris. Yeah, I now. mean, that's a really mm. – let's let's talk about that one there mm. because I think, you know, this is one that was, it is very common. You know, clients will buy a property. They didn't get any advice when they purchased that property. They just went and got a mortgage. They didn't know whether to get an 80% loan or a 60% loan mm. or a 70% loan. They just 
went and selected the right loan. They put all their money in. So might, they might have got a low loan. They might not even have borrowed at 80%. Yep. And then they um, they bought within their means because that's what society told them to do and they bought a little place, not a place they can grow into. Mm. And then they saved really hard and then they paid that property off. Yeah. And then they get to a point where they go, we're outgrowing this property and I want to upgrade. And then they go see a broker to do it and they say, I want to keep that property. Um, and then the problem here is that the property's got no debt on it. Mm. Yeah. And um, really their only option financially is probably to sell that property. Um, and so, you know, and because of the mm. tax situation. And so even if they do want to keep it and, and it's a good asset, they really have to sell it and it buy it. Make sell. Sense. Um, so, yeah. it's, it, you know, that's a big, you know, if they did see a mortgage broker originally, like, you know, someone with a property plan mindset would have said maybe let's borrow at 80%, let's use an offset account. And then they would have potentially had the ability, might have went interest only, um, to keep that property. So that, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. And what about some of the little small things in the mortgages itself, though? Like, you know, you know, in terms of discounts and, and things like that, are all lenders equal? You know, are discounts always locked in? How does that work? Yeah, look, I don't do the actual mortgage broking anymore and haven't for a little while, so I'm not as close to it as I once was. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've got a team of six or seven mortgage brokers, but it, I don't think it's changed too much. The you know Some lenders will guarantee an ongoing discount, whereas others won't. Mm. Um, you know, people chasing low rates with um, smaller lenders who have to, it's harder for them to access f- funding, mm. uh, come under pressure. You know, I've been around 20 odd years now and you see when they come under pressure for their funding, they bump up rates. Mm. So people enter at a really low rate, mm. um, but then they end up paying much higher over time. Mm-hmm. So th- that's a risk uh, that can happen with, with discounted rates. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, there's it's definitely, I mean, there's a lot of, um, in the last few years in particular, a lot of uh, borrowers have had to go to non-big four banks because their servicing got limited and they went to smaller lenders like mm. non-banks. What Dave's talking about there is if those non-banks get their funding cut, yeah, they mm. they're more likely to put their rates up, and so it's a big risk for people using those lenders, and they, you know, entice you in with a low rate, and then you get in, and then you've got that risk. In terms of, um, you could have made a decision as a business though to uh, around the property selection to look at lots of different properties, both new and established, and things like that. What decision did you make back many years ago, and and how did that kind of play out? Well, I, I came to learn, as you two know, that um, there are a lot of risks with newer property and th- the actual land-to-asset ratio is often quite low. What that is is the overall percentage of the value of the property that is made up in the land component um, is quite low with new properties uh, and the actual building that sits on top of the land or the notional land in the apartments is depreciating quite rapidly. So we uh, looked at land to asset ratio as one of the foundational pieces to determine what types of properties outperform. And generally the land to asset ratio when it was above 50% was established property. Mm. And we, we had buyer's agents in-house, you know, 15 years ago before most people knew what a buyer's agent was on the exploration of uh, ultimately the pathway of the business that we've mm-hmm. gone down. So we've, we've mainly bought 
established property with good land to asset ratios uh, because fundamentally the land, as you both know, does the heavy lifting mm. uh, in the capital growth and Australia's capital growth has been historically very strong and it, you know, the growth is growing the biggest dollar value of the asset, which, you know, mm -hmm. rather than the cash flow. Mm. So residential property has been a asset capital growth play mm. predominantly where you maximise your money over the long term. And, you know, I, I try to have tried to look at property as if it wasn't anything at the end other than a dollar figures. Right, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so break down what are, and numbers really, not mm. even dollar figures, break down the numbers and what are the numbers doing and what are the numbers telling us and what are the two, what are the components of the asset and, and one is land and one is dwelling. Yeah. And, and analyse those. Now you still, in terms of the dwelling, it play, absolutely plays a part mm. and you need a dwelling for the yield mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it costs a lot to change an ugly floor plan. Uh, you know, there, there's a beauty to certain properties yeah. and, you know. Specificity, uniqueness around certain architectural elements, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You mentioned the word outperform though. How, what, what do you define as outperforming or how do you measure outperformance? Well, I like to try and keep things simple. So really it's above the average capital growth rate. And use average rather than median. Well, average when it's a when there's lots and lots of numbers, um, median in terms of values, but maybe average on capital growth rates. Mm -hmm. It really it depends on what the different data providers, how their methodology, mm -hmm. and looking at their numbers and then assessing it. The thing that that we you know is really powerful with property and for people to remember is you only need a one percent outperformance on a asset figure of hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions over time. Yeah. Millions mm. over mm. 20, yeah. 30 years. You yeah. know, yeah. our goals have mm. been to help people buy as few properties as they need mm. to reach their goals and try to sell as few as possible. And, you know, as you mentioned yeah. before, um, I've made the mistake, that mistake we talked about before I sold my first property because I didn't understand yeah. a mortgage strategy at that point. Uh, that's an interesting point because um, it goes against, um, you know, property magazines. Um, you've just mentioned there your the goal is to uh, buy as few as property as possible. Well, that doesn't make sense. Listeners might be thinking because you're a mortgage broker and, you know, you're not going to get paid as much or something like that, right, because your goal is to, you know, buy lots of properties. And then you said sell as few. So tell us why those are two things that are important because, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, you don't need to own lots of property to be wealthy. Mm. Some of our wealthiest clients only own two to four properties. Mm. Um, the family. <laughs> it's what they own, right? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, paying down debt and having strong capital growth and holding for a long time, mm. you know. So boring, isn't it? It's really boring. <laughs> that, we will, we will, <laughs> we oh, wanna, not for me. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so boring. The strategy yeah. is, oh, sounds boring. I've got boring. 10. Yeah. I've got yeah. 10. I've got 10 properties. But it's interesting well, you yeah. say that, though, because you're saying some of the wealthiest. But, um, I mean, how many clients do you reckon you've probably seen over the last 15 years, you know, as a business, I guess? M how many have I personally well, seen? Well, just as a business, how many do you reckon you've oh. seen? <laughs> Ten, over ten thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. It's quite a fair, fair, um, 
statistically significant amount. Yeah, and yeah. Then of that, you know, <laughs> have you seen many that the quantity strategies that's actually worked for people? Uh, I've seen it work and it, it has worked. Mm. Uh, but it, it's outside the risk profile of most people mm. and it's outside the financial capacity of most people. Mm. And I think, you know, you could also potentially make a case and maybe it's just me getting older and more conservative, whether the property market is going to have the same long-term capital growth rates. Now, you know, average income growth is lower, mm. productivity is stuck lower, interest rates are lower. So, Wage uh, growth. Yeah. Yep. So um, <clears throat> the ability to be able to buy multiple properties, live off the equity, mm. fund for the next purchase, like, you know, some clients, some of our clients have mm. and they've been really successful. You know, they've got $10, $20 million portfolios. Mm. But that that's they're, they're not even in the 1%. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, they're in the 0.01%. And so what have they had or did that was different to everybody else? I would say a high income. Yeah, mm. okay. The wherewithal in the first place. Yeah, high income, uh, higher risk takers, mm. and purchased predominantly in major capital cities and ma- mainly Melbourne and Sydney, where mm. most of our clients have. And this is a bit a problem with that sort of the selling the dream of the quality or the quantity versus quality, is that quite often it's the people that don't have the high income and they're actually seeking to make up for the fact that they don't have a high income mm. by accumulating property and they're trying to fast track things as opposed to having a high income and then wanting to make the most out of the fact they've got this cash flow. It's a very mm. different way of approaching it, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, that a lot of the way the property sold is, you know, substitute your income, yeah. get additional income, et cetera. And so people who are kind of cutting it fine generally tend to take the biggest risk because mm. they end up buying the, the cheapest most risky properties yeah. uh, mm. and then all of a sudden they've got four or five properties and the cash flow is really tight yeah. and then it takes one little oh, wheel to fall off. One little mining town crash. Yeah, that's right, yeah. especially if they've crossed the queue and they've got mm. to pay down there. It all kind of unravels really fast. Mm. Um, and, but you talked about also that they're high appetite for risk and so the reality is if they're buying lower risk properties, even though the, the dollar value of each purchase is going to be higher, you could argue that that's actually not high, high risk at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so much of what we do is about optimising probability Mm. of positive outcomes for our clients. Mm. And that feeds directly into risk management. Mm. And so, that yeah, buying in the capital cities because of the underlying economies, job opportunities, higher incomes, it's more expensive to get into Mm. but it's also going to have with more certainty Yes, sir. Yeah, mm. long-term demand. So in terms of um, mortgage strategy that, you know, in terms of like because um, a lot of people are first-time buyers, right, and so they go, oh, I don't want to ever pay lenders mortgage insurance. You know, can you explain why that's sometimes a, a bit of a false economy and it's not really a good idea? Sometimes you should pay lenders mortgage insurance. Mm. Well, I think for historically the property market has grown at a rate faster than most people's income. Mm-hmm. So it's probably that simple. <laughs> you know, if you wait too long to save your extra uh, 15% or, you know, if you're starting at 95 and mm. as as we know, 95% doesn't mean you need 5%. Mm. It means you need about 15 
percent because you need some money left over after you settle. I'll send a buffer. Yeah. 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 And so um, <clears throat> if you if you wait too long, you know, time is a, forgives a lot of sins, mm. you know, and if you, if you select a half-decent property mm-hmm. and you get in nice and early, you create opportunity because of capital growth mm-hmm. and because of inflation and because you're a young person, your income's likely to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in a couple, you might be not have kids, but you've got two incomes, so you've arguably got your logistics uh, surplus cash flow mm. that you'll have, mm. you know, until you have kids. I yeah. guess it might also give you opportunity if you've got serviceability to actually buy a better asset than you would if you were trying to keep your budget smaller so that you could avoid LMI. Yeah, I mean, definitely. So if you've only got a cut $200,000, let's say, and you want to avoid lenders' mortgage insurance, you could probably buy something around seven fifty, eight hundred thousand. But if you want to pay a little bit of lenders' mortgage insurance, maybe you could buy something at a million or 1.1, and that could be the difference between buying an asset that you might outgrow in a couple of years versus an asset that you could live in for 15, 20 years, you know, and that could, you know, be a much better decision. So just avoiding yeah. that lenders' mortgage insurance, mm. fixated on that, really limits your options because yeah. you – you, you end up shopping in an area and it might not get you a great asset or not the right asset for you. Yeah. The uh, you know, first aid buyer is definitely one part, but then another big customer for you would be, you know, the upgrader, you know, yep. the person who's got a property but then they want to move into another property. Yep. I feel like a lot of brokers will, you know, just do the easy option, sell your property and then come back to us and then we'll help you on the buy. But what's some of the things that a good broker can do to really guide someone through that whole decision? Well, there's so many decisions to make if you're buying and selling simultaneously, particularly if you're in the fortunate position to be able to keep the property that you're currently living in mm. and that's where the mortgage strategy can make a make a huge difference to your ability to do that. But if you're not in that position, then timing is really important mm. and you, the, one of the first decisions you need to make is are you going to sell first and then buy or, or are you going to buy, which is bigger risk, and then try and sell. And so taking the time to talk through the decisions around this process of upgrading is a big part of, you know, what a, what a quality mortgage broker, mm. property planner, buyer's agent should help people do. Mm-hmm. And so and I guess why would you potentially go down the buy route first versus the sell first and you know because a lot of people would just think oh i'll just take the easy option and i'll just sell first um but then there's risks with that right and then i guess it or someone was to say i'll buy first but then there's risks with that option mm. so what are some of the, the pros and cons about you know going down different strategies well with buying first it makes more sense if you're in a market that is uh on the upward swing at a reasonable trajectory mm. because every uh, day of delay mm. Uh, you, the the market's costing you more. So the sooner you get in, mm. uh, there's the 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 lower price you pay, and the more likelihood that if your property is in a similar market, that it you're going to get a better return on your mm-hmm. property. Well, and the other issue with buyers' market, sorry, sellers. That's a seller's market we're talking about. The other issue with that sort of market conditions is that the availability of the sort of property that you would want to buy is going to be generally lower and also the competition for that property is going to be higher so it's actually a harder thing to do is to buy than is to sell 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the higher you go up the totem pole in property prices, the more scarce they are. Yeah, yeah. And Deeper so you could be pockets. out of the market for quite a long time mm. if you've sold, um, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting for the right property to come up. I actually, in the in the um, in the last boom, um, I had people coming to me after having sold and then being out of the market for two years. So basically, people had sold in two thousand thirteen, for instance, came to mm-hmm. me in two thousand fifteen, couldn't buy their old house back. Yeah. You know, they price themselves out of the market. Mm-hmm. That upgrade gone. They can't mm-hmm. stay in the same area. They have to forced took them yeah. that long to you know get over mm-hmm. the grief of it and mm-hmm. went. Oh my god, I need to really you know, radically change my whole approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some real dangers with, with uh, selling first, you know, given what it would, depending on what the market's doing. That, that's a huge danger. Mm. You know, mm. you've, and this is why you need to put your ducks in a row beforehand. Mm. Buying and selling, whichever one you do first, you've got to be ready to go mm. on the other. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I actually well, that's, that's, the, that's the good point. So, you know, if you are going to sell first, there's no point going, um, to a real estate agent because they're going to want to sell it. Mm. So they're going to be saying, let's put it on the market, right? Yeah. And they're probably going to overinflate your expectations potentially. So but you need to get real realistic of what you're going to sell it for. But before you push the button on that, you really need to figure out how much money am I going to walk away with? You know, let's say it's 300000 or 500000 And then can I get a loan right now for the property that I want to buy? Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's not, you know, if you go to a mortgage broker and, you know, you say, they might say, well, no, you can't actually borrow at the moment because, you know, you're only on one income mm. and your partner's on maternity leave or, you know, they're on, yeah. you know, or, you know, for some reason the bank lending or you just started a business um, and you need two years. So you really need to make sure you can borrow the money you need to on the next purchase. But then you've also got to understand what it is you can buy and what the possibilities are. So we actually have a service where we, we do that that session with people to educate them as to what the possibilities are and we ask them to go to their broker first mm. so they fully understand what their capacity is and then we sit down and we get them to fill in wish lists and say, right, let's show you what you could have bought, say, in the last three to six months depending on. So we're basing it on what really is in the market and actually mm. going through all their different options at various price points. To, and also getting rid of that needle in the haystack mentality as well um, to say, right, you need to have your absolute crystal clear understanding of what your possibilities are and where you're going to be looking and what you're going to be buying and what that's going to cost you before you put your property on the market mm. so you can hit the ground running the minute you get an offer. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So vital. And this is in why we ask in our property pathway questions that we start with at the beginning of the property plan journey, one of the questions we ask everybody is do you plan to purchase a future home? Mm. Because... Mm we really need to consider, okay, what would that look like? And then we have a, a bunch of questions around the home, mm. location, the type of property, the land size, the dwelling. What are your priorities for the location? We have about 10 options and they need mm. to prioritise them, one to 10. What are the suburbs you're looking at? What's the price range? Because the sooner you th- are thinking about your future home, if you have one, mm. the better. And yeah. we've got... A great example of a client of ours who missed out on a property about seven years ago before they were clients of ours. This is subsequently. Uh, they became clients, but they missed out on a property for $900,000 in Hawthorne East. They bought it two or three years later for $1.6 million. Same house. Same house. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and then what did they do for that two or three years? Did they buy something else and then try it? No, they just... 
waited for the market to fall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what they're hoping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they that, finally worked it out. Oh, it's not going to happen. Mm-mm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they because they didn't have clarity on, on like they were looking yeah. between Hawthorne East to Middle Park. Oh, mm. yeah. Yeah. And, and what I find too, the buyers, what they will do, they'll go on this sort of linear, you know, this sort of curvy, swervy, linear project trajectory. So they'll start here. Oh, I don't really like what I can get for my money here. Mm. So I'll go and look in that suburb over there and then, oh, I don't really mm. like that. Maybe go back there. Oh, yep. oh, there's actually something over there. And they can't mm. physically cover all of this in one at one time. No so way. It, it's very linear. Mm. And, Absolutely. you know, we need, you need the helicopter approach to pull yeah. up and go, right, well, you've got, mm. you got 5% chance of getting what you want in that area, you know, through yeah. scarcity or whatever. Mm. You've got you got 90% chance of getting it over there. Mm. You need to spend all your activity, all your energy over there. But don't forget the 5% because you never know. You might get lucky mm. um but cover yeah. the whole lot don't just focus on the five percenter mm. yeah or spend your all your time in the 90 percenter and go oh but i really don't want to be here yeah because you, know, you haven't really really um come to terms with the fact that well you can't actually afford to be yeah yeah it's really hard it, it's a really hard journey trying to buy that ideal home mm. uh but the sooner you start getting clarity on it mm. the better yeah and if we can help people have a framework mm. to work through, you know, anything as we get older we realise that we're trying to figure out and project manage, mm. having a structure mm. and a framework to manage the project mm. really helps. So that's part of yeah, what we help our clients do as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, the conversation generally though when you would walk into a mortgage broker, and I think a lot of listeners would have had this experience, is that the mortgage broker isn't too concerned about what you're doing you know, they're not really going to ask you too many questions around the asset you're buying. You know, they're not going to say if that's a good property or not. I doubt very few would probably ask, you know, is that going to be your future home? Are you going to have kids, um, et cetera? But really, you've got to, before you go out and buy property, you've really got to know, um, have thought about your future home. You know, mm. if you are going to have kids and things like that, are you able mm. to go into it? Because if you haven't thought about that and you go and buy an investment property, mm. then you go and, oh, actually, we want kids and we've got a one bedroom unit. Mm. What are you going to do? Sell the unit and then mm. go buy a house. And yep. so I think yeah. that's one of the biggest, you know, value adds that you can get going and seeing a bit of a strategist with a mortgage that actually cares about those things because they'll ask you the right questions. Mm. Yeah, I think a good strategist, mortgage strategist, property planner mm. uh, or buyer's agent will talk through those things and they won't be f- uh, predominantly focused on making a sale. Mm. Well, and yes, and, and the same problem is with buyer's agents, of course. You know, if you're not um, dealing with a buyer's agent who's asking those, those questions, really just to clarify, it's a massive big commitment buying mm. a property, massive. And, you know, if you haven't actually thought through even next year, let alone five years, ten years, you know, all mm. that sort of stuff, then take a moment for God's sake, you know, mm. because once you're in it, it's like that turnstile. You yeah. Through the turnstile, yeah. you can see where you just came from, but you can't get back there, yeah. you know, you, you're committed. Yeah. So so getting that right is so critical. But I know a lot of buyers agents the same, that they're, mm. they're very transactional. It's like, oh, you want one of those? Okay, I'll go mm. and find you one of them. And it's like, well, it, can we just check for a minute whether that is really, mm. you know, am I, I, I don't believe in my business so I'm, I'm properly serving the client unless we actually properly advise them. And sometimes that means telling them things that they may not want to hear. But it's, it's, if they still choose to do it, that's fine, but at least we've actually educated them along the way. Well, that's a good yeah. point actually. I mean, what are some of the things that you do say to clients where, um, you know, they're not what they want to hear, not what they were expecting? Um, because I think that's a really interesting point because, um, you know, that's the experience they would get, right? 
Well, I, yeah, so um, the, absolutely. I think one of the <laughs> the qualities of a, a top-notch advisor in any field is you're willing to say things that your client doesn't want to hear. Mm. Yeah, unpopular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but the reality is, people want to hear that. Mm. Some do. Some yeah, don't. no, that's true. Mm. That's true. A mm. smaller percentage don't, and well, unfortunately, they're probably going to end up with poor quality advice. Well, that's for or no advice because or they no know advice. it all. But, but they're validators, and so if yeah. that customer yeah. walks in and they <clears throat> um, think about, you know, I get this. You know, sometimes um, and they'll have a strategy, and I'll I'll say this is what I think about it. Mm. You know, it's you know, I'm very careful how I say it. I'm not just mm. rah rah like I, you know, position it in a way <laughs> and you know, massage it through. So sometimes it's you know, it's digestible. But if they say, look, they want someone to validate what they do, is then they're not really a client that you want as a business. No, exactly right. You if 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 it upsets them, that's fine. But if that's the right advice, they need to be able to deal with that, and then they're going to be a client for life anyway. I yeah. actually so, I put this out to to potential clients who are sitting down in front of them and. You know, they might pay us or pay us for a strategy session. So that's a really just a one-on-one, you know, 90 minutes. We actually go through the situation and give them three points to go next, right? So it's like get, put them in the right direction. I sat recently with some people who had this crazy idea and I'm like, oh, okay, your minutes are ticking away. There's not many left, there's 90 minutes left. And I finally I just said, right, okay, we can go two ways here. You're paying me for my time. I could either just pat you on the back and tell you that, yes, yes, you're doing a great job, off you go, and go and and feel good about yourself, or I could tell you what I actually think, which is probably not what you want to hear. Now, I'm going to give you the opportunity at this moment to tell me what service you want. Me to pat you on the back, tell you what a clever person you are, and you can just go off thinking nothing different, or I'm going to open your eyes to a different way of looking at that, and it's up to you then what you do. Mm. And you could see... They really had to think about that because really? truly yeah. they wanted me to pat them on pat the back. Pat them on the back. That's mm. really well expressed. Uh, you expressed mm. that so well. <laughs> and you probably realised there were people yeah, who wanted to be patted on they the back. They did. They, which they, is they, why you're positioned. They were brave <laughs> enough to go, okay, tell us what you yeah. really think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in your experience, so, those clients, though, have you found that when you have said that that they don't want to hear, you might lose them initially, but do they come back years down the line? Yeah, oh, look, we, absolutely. We, we've had clients or people who you've had a conversation with two years ago and to, it, it's taken two years for the conversation to resonate. The penny to drop. The penny to drop, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Give and, us an example. Um, Obviously no, naming no names. but Yeah, look, I mean the, probably the most common example is when people have considered buying off the plan. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've shared with them why they are higher risk. We'll just say they're higher risk, mm. you know, because a small percentage of them can work if they have something really unique about them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then they've experienced, they've read, they've watched, they've looked and, you know, the penny's dropped a couple. You know, sometimes you have, they've actually made the mistake. Yeah. They've, they've gone, gone and made the mistake and then they come back. They did it back. anyway. Yeah. Sunk cost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they already invested so much in it, they did it anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, you know, I actually had one of these, funny we're talking about this because I had a one of these conversations yesterday afternoon in terms of two-thirds of the conversation was talking about something the potential client didn't want to hear because he's looking at buying an off-the-plan property. He um, doesn't service the amount of debt he'd need to take on. Ah, uh, oh, yes. Okay, but he's planning that this property will go up in value in four years' time 
Don't uh, love him, so he's got a crystal ball. <laughs> he's, ru- he's rubbing the crystal ball. He's in the wrong and- business, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is a really smart guy who runs a successful business that he started mm. and he he wants to see the bright lights and mainly he's excited by the concept, mm. yeah. you know, and it is a bit of a unique um, off-the-plan opportunity. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, the price points are 2 to $3 million mm. and, you know, so I'm just trying to frame it around risk. Yeah, you know, that's if you can, yeah. really, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. That's an interesting mm. one, though, because a lot of listeners wouldn't have thought through the real risk there. There's two risks. One's that in two or three years' time or four years' time or whatever it is. Um, is not worth what he paid? Is it worth? <laughs> and, um, you know, that it's not only is it not worth what he paid, but mm. it's, you know, it's worth less. And so that's always yeah. that's happening yeah. now, which is a lot of brokers who deal with off-the-plan space no, Dave wouldn't do a lot with it um, <laughs> unless clients come and they really want help and I'm sure you would help them if Look, they... Look, if someone's bought off the plan, we help them absolutely with exactly. their mortgages. We don't advise buying off the plan mm. yeah. almost ever, but, yeah. Sometimes yeah, but you've done it already exactly. they come to you. Yeah, well, and, and they still want good mortgage advice and, yeah. Yeah, and we've got to help them. And so, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, we know that it's not great because a lot of the time we do have valuation problems and we do have to get people out of the messy situations mm. and do multiple valuations, et cetera. But... Um, that's the settlement risk is something that's really coming on. But the real risk, what Dave was just highlighting there, which a lot of gloss over a lot of people, mm. um, is they've signed the contract in 2019 and then oh, this yeah. guy thinks in 2022 he's going to earn enough money that he's going to be able to settle on that property. Okay, because you already said that he can't service it now. So he's banking and betting on his own income in four years' time. Yeah, mm. that's, that's massively risky, isn't that's it? That's hugely risky. Yeah, and, you know, our great, one of our great strategic mortgage brokers and he's been talking to a number of mortgage brokers and he, he said our strategic mortgage broker who he's been dealing with has been fantastic, you know, he's going to use him, but um, he wanted to have a chat about the property side of things. And our strate- all our strategic mortgage brokers have a level of property expertise. As, mm. You know, mm. you learnt, obviously, mm. Chris, a lot of property grounding mm. yeah, with us and... Um, and uh, not taking credit for all your knowledge, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little bit awkward in here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so he wanted to have a chat with me about the property uh, side of things and, um, you know, that borrowing capacity piece, not having the borrowing capacity, the risk around that is is monumental. Let's talk about that a bit more because he also doesn't have the savings at the moment either. Right, so to he, settle on it, so you know, at an eighty percent LVR or so. This no. is the thing though that that I've often spoken to people about. They say that off the plan's so good because I only have to have a small amount of money and I can use the rest of the time to save up the rest of the deposit. Um, you know what I mean? Like it, so, it's like they're sailing so close to the wind as it is. Yeah. there's no margin for error if that property ends up being valued at less than the contract price, you know, apart from the fact that is their income and serviceability, do interest rates do what we think they're going to do between Mm. now and then? There's so many variables and yet they're trying to jump into something well before they actually physically are able to. That's exactly right. So what Dave was just the second point there is, no, he hasn't got the income at a level that he needs when he wants to settle on this property Mm. a few years later. That's risky because he runs a business as that is an example. And if that business doesn't perform as mm. he expects, we're all a bit optimistic in the future and the world reset. Who knows? We just don't know. Risk, 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 risk. risk, risk. But the, oh. savings, <laughs> yeah. the savings risk is also another one. I've seen this yes. as well. Um, if you haven't, you know, and with off the plan, you generally need a 20% deposit. Mm. Not And a lot of lenders 
won't want to do LMI um, on them and over 90%, over 80%. Mm. There are a couple that will. It's not to say they won't, but there's only a handful. And what Um, does that say about their perception of the risk? Well, it's it's funny actually because one of the banks that does it is actually a really conservative bank like ING do over 80%. um, But, you know, generally they're a bit more conservative. Um, And so it's, but, you know, like if you haven't got the savings, and you've got to then save that money over that year or two years or three years. What happens if you can't save it? You know, yeah. just yeah. things pop up. Yeah. Or what happens have- if you can't save it? What happens if uh, LVR has changed lending we policy? You get, get sick, your income yeah. doesn't Interest grow. Interest rates go up. Interest rate grows up, properties go down. Yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, they're, they're it just shows yeah. a massive naivety. And wishful thinking. Mm. Go back to our episode. We did a wishful thinking episode back in the thirties. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about wishful thinking? Yeah. Um, that's a great example. Mm. You know, that could have been your property dumbo, but I'm sure you've got an even better example when we get to that. <laughs> well, this guy's clearly an optimist, and he's a successful person. Mm. And so, some of his positive character traits oh, are taking over. Yes. Mm. Uh, it, in this micro example, I think there's the Dunning Kruger mm. effect, mm. which is you know when we don't know much about something we think we know a lot more mm. once we learn a bit about it we realize how much there is to know yeah and then when you can become an expert you actually can lose sight of how much you know yes <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, yeah yeah So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five-star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. Pre-approvals are something that, um, you know, a bit of a, a funny topic. You know, a lot of people um, think they're pre-approved and they're not. You know, can you explain how that is a bit of a problem that especially I think it's starting to go there now even more so. How is this problem? Um, how is it a problem? Well, as you, as you know, you guys know, I mean, no pre-approval is a guarantee of getting finance, full stop. Mm. Now, it's absolutely worthwhile to get pre-approval before you're negotiating a purchase or bidding at an auction every single time. Mm. But it's it's not um, a certainty that you're going to get finance because mm. they, they need to reassess that your circumstances are still the same as they were when you applied for the loan. Mm-hmm. Lenders have pulled back in terms of uh, allowing the pre-approval to last, so often it's only three mm. months rather than six months. Sometimes some lenders don't have a human being assessing it. <laughs> Computer says yes. Uh, so um, and and also if the external economy outside of, you know, we talk a lot about I'm a, I'm a fan of re- understanding your internal economy, your personal economy, mm. and making your decisions on your own personal economy predominantly. But then if the external economy does change, if rates go up, mm. well, you can't borrow as much, mm. you know, because benchmark mm. assessment rates are likely to go mm. up as well. So so there there's a number of risks. Yes. And, and, that's the, and the property. You haven't even talked about the property and where the valuation <laughs> comes in, mm. um, you know, yep. because people often think, oh, well, the bank will just, Go in at um, auction price, for argument's sake, and and they may or they may not. 
that's that's a really good point as well. Yes. I mean, mm. um, in the past, you know, lenders would have pretty simple property um, security, you know, restrictions. But as you know, there's more risk around. Banks are saying, "Well, I don't want to be playing in that space." Absolutely. You know, small apartments. Mm. You know, people go. I've got pre-approval, so they go out and spend six hundred thousand dollars on an apartment, and then they find out it's thirty-five square meters, and yeah. that pre-approval is invalid. Well, they or, didn't realise, or, or I've heard of people buying company title at auction and not realising mm. that their pre-approval didn't mm. actually cover mm. company title. Bank won't lend on it. Peruse the contract in advance, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> well, please <laughs> go to your broker. I always say get the broker to mm. comment on that particular property to see if there's any hurdles that you need to mm. know about. Absolutely. Mm. And and find out to Chris's point, find out all the restrictions the lender you're getting pre-approval with mm. places on properties and LVRs. Mm. And guess postcodes. what? Postcodes. Postcodes, mm. property types, yeah. um, title types. Mm. And, the, and, you know, the reason the banks put these restrictions on them is very simple. They think they're at, at a lower risk of growing in value. Mm. Yeah, they're less likely to grow in value. There's a warning. It's also self-perpetuating because, of course, if then banks won't lend on it, of course they're not going to grow in value at the same rate because not as many people can borrow the money to buy the things. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Exactly right. And especially if you get something called a blacklisted postcode, a blacklisted Mm. building, Um, you know, especially if there's, you know, think about things in um, Opal Tower as an example and, you know, well, as an example, it doesn't need a bank to blacklist. It that doesn't, one. but you know, <laughs> mm. if a bank does this blacklist, that no one can ever borrow to buy into that building yeah. because yeah. the bank doesn't want to go anywhere near it. But that's happening on whole suburbs um, and whole buildings. But I think different banks do that though. Um, I, mean, I had a client some years back who was with St George, and the you know we were looking at a building and sent off the broker, and the broker came back and said, "Oh, St George won't lend in that building. Their exposure is yeah. too high in that building." It, but other banks will. You know, and because yeah. of her decision she wanted to go with St George, she didn't buy that property because of that. Mm. That puts some doubt in her mind. That's just one bank, one building. Yeah. No other bank's going to have the same exposure in that building because probably St George has a lion's share of all the, the loans in it. But, but you know, that that's an interesting difference because it doesn't necessarily reflect that the building's bad. It actually no. reflects that particular bank's exposure. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, most banks will limit their amount of exposure to a medium to high-density apartment block, mm. yeah, because of the risks there. So it's per block, right? Per so block. Yeah. yeah. So they ended up getting a whole list of addresses. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. you can be a little bit that can catch you out if you are buying bigger unit blocks, um, not the smaller ones so much. You know, the bank's just like, mm. I'm happy yeah. with that. That's a good asset. Even if I've got three or four <laughs> of the six, mm. I don't mind. It's the yeah. one you got 30, 40, 50 in apartments yeah. or more, 200. Mm. That's where the bank's getting a bit yeah. nervous. Yeah. But Dave mentioned just you know these listening on these podcasts. Sometimes you're saying great bits of advice. But it just kind of slides through. Um, you <laughs> pick made, him up, pick him up. You made a point. It? It's um, around computer assessment versus ah, human assessment. Right, yeah. Now, if you think of you're a bank and you've got a mortgage book, um, you've got it to process an application. There's actually a cost to the bank. Mm. They've got to have a human assessor sitting on a chair in a capital city. They've got an office. They've got a wage. They've got sick leave. They've got super. It's expensive for the bank to process these applications. And so what happens is is the banks are thinking, how could we – and they know that pre-approvals, only a very small portion of pre-approvals actually turn into business because sometimes you get a pre-approval, you don't buy, you use a different bank, yep. et cetera. And so what's happening now is all the banks are moving to automated computer assessments for pre-approvals. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, most banks are going that direction. And yeah. a computer pre-approval is worthless. Mm. It is not worth anything. And a It's lot worth of- as much as the quality of your mortgage broker. Well, yeah. <laughs> the quality of their assessment prior to lodging it because That's it's true. really That's just true. reading the numbers mm. and the right. documents provided by the broker. But don't you guys, like, isn't the point, one of the differentiators of a good broker is really you're pitching your client as a story, right, as in this is a, they're a case mm, effectively. Absolutely. How can you do yeah. that if a computer's assessing the application? <laughs> if you're a good broker, you would actually do the checks that a human would do. Right. But one of the benefits of using, doing a pre-approval is you lodge it with the lender you're not the one doing the assessment. The bank who's going to lend the money is doing the assessment and you know that if they're going to lend the money, it's not oh, the risk isn't on you. Mm. But when you use a computer pre-approval, mm. the risk is on you as a broker. If you've then got a computer pre-approval, then they get declined. That's not great. So I'm really mm. hesitant using these because if you're going to if a client's trusting your word, yeah, and you've missed something, mm. um, yeah, then the client's gone and bought a property, yeah. And a lot of people have got, you know, computer pre-approvals, go yeah. out and bid at auction every day. But they have no oh, idea that no. it's not this actually. This is a big elephant, isn't it? This okay. is a, this is actually a really good elephant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let me get this right. So, you can can you choose how your application is assessed, computer no. or otherwise? So, how do you do it as a broker? How do you go? Oh, I'm not going with that bank because they use computers. I mean, well, obviously, they'll all end up using computers. One of these. That's days. the problem. Mm. So, in the past, there was only a few lenders that did it. I think yeah. it was Bankwest. Bankwest were one of the first, and yeah. you know, we definitely, as a business, would aim not to put pre-approvals <laughs> with Bankwest, right? Because it was assessed by computers. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But now Macquarie do it. Now, see, uh, you know, um, ING, ING yeah. are now doing it, you know, and so it's now spreading, right? And so yeah. you, um, and uh, like NAB, NAB do it. And so you can't, like, uh, people walk into NAB or CBA and they think they've got, I've got a client who just bought on Friday, on Friday, he's got a CBA pre-approval. He does not know, I had to tell him, that that was a computer-based assessment. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe if they thought about things in a different way, and looked at the risk assessment, mm. maybe they could start extending the pre-approval period out to six months mm. so they don't have to be reassessing as many loans every three months. Yes. <laughs> so there'll be less loans to assess, mm. which saves money, mm. saves cost, and maybe they could then put the humans back in, mm. you know. So maybe there are different ways. They could look at things to differentiate and keep using the humans for the mm. pre-approvals, mm, but minimise the work. So, yeah. Perhaps okay. the people who are running the business. So this, this is a yeah. giant elephant. I mean, it's one, <laughs> this is one of the issues that, that I've always, it's, it's always done my head in, right, that, that the risk purely lies on the buyer, you know, really, uh, in, in, in so many ways, but certainly in this particular case. So buyer goes to auction. Buyer has pre-approval. Um, bank or broker has seen brochure of property and said, yeah, 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 sure, that sh- shouldn't be an issue. They go along, though, it's still subject to valuation. Now, obviously, if they've got enough equity or, or cash, mm. then, you know, the risk is diminished because you're not sitting in that borderline 80-20 rule, you know. Mm. Yeah. But but if the valuation does come in at less and they've got to find money from elsewhere, their risk lies completely and solely on their head, right? Now, I guess you as a broker, they come to you and then the valuation comes in lower and all of a sudden they don't have the cash, um, you know, or they're, they're horrible, they're making they're selling their youngest child or whatever. Um, what are the options, you know, if they get themselves in that predicament? With a low valuation? 
Yeah. Well, what if the what are the options? If somebody has got a pre-approval that they've been acting on in good faith and they've yeah. not really realised at the end of the day, even a one assessed by a human yeah. isn't infallible, is no, it? No, no. So, so. Look, I, I believe there's a moral obligation for the lender to still approve it mm. if the circumstances haven't changed. Yes. And on the rare occasion where this exact point has come up, whether a human or mm. computer assessed it, that's absolutely what we've held the lender to account to. Right. And um, I, I can't think of a circumstance, like there might have been one or two in, in a long 20 years, you know, that I can, that we might have had to go to another lender. Mm. But it, it's very rare, you know, mm. big, and, they, you know, at the end of the day, it, the ultimate decisions are made by humans. And, um, you know, most of them are decent people. Mm. So, well, sometimes yeah. somebody digs their heels in and they get a bit stubborn. I know yeah. valuers yeah. can do that in terms of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. low valuations yeah. don't generally happen if on established property, um, it's more the off the plan, newer space. Oh, so I've or, seen it, not, not or, very often, but I have definitely seen it. I, th- I think the low valuations happen more often than, say, a pre approval not being um, honoured. Honoured, right. yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes they can happen if you're buying in an auction like. Uh, environment, but you buy pre-auction. Mm, yes. Um, the the valuer goes in and looks at that property uh, and thinks the only way this property has been sold prior to auction is you've paid more yeah, than they overs. thought they were going to get at auction. Yeah. And I've had that where even if it's a quality asset, yeah. they're bought in a pre-auction environment and now I've actually had to have the buyer's agent in this scenario mm. um, prove why that it was actually a fair price. Yeah. And to prove that it was actually a pre-auction bidding war mm. with another buyer got them to that price. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I haven't actually, other than that, though, on established properties, I haven't had any problems. But bearing in mind that we're buying really quality assets, no main roads, we're not buying, yeah. you know, risky properties, et cetera. But I'm sure a lot of brokers do have problems with valuation mm. where they're not, you know, the potential. But auctions conditions, it's, it's probably... The best way to value a property is what it's worth is on auction day. Well, no, it's worth the, what the second last bid was because that's the only bid yeah. you've got two people at. But you're really? not bidding more than a hundred grand more than the last bid. You're usually bidding, you know, five, ten grand more. Oh no! Well, then again, the way we bid is very different because of all the research and education that we've done prior. Mm. You know, we actually we had some press recently because of a five hundred thousand dollar knockout bid. Mm. Right now. I was like, oh no! I knew damn well that you know it was a, it was a gutsy thing, but there were eleven people registered at this auction. Yep. It had been quoted very, very low. We right. had five comparables that were more than what we paid yeah. for it, yep. um, and we also knew that there was an underbidder for another property in the room that had gone up to twenty five thousand dollars less on another property than what we paid for this one. You know what I mean? So we yep. had so much information as to yeah. why we did what we did. Mm. But, of course, my poor buyer's agent, because, you know, Lucy, we're, we're standing there and I'm like, right, because we plotted out this, we had a plan. The client was party to it as well. But um, so we had our plan and we, we had a very good reason for doing right. this. Um, but 
it, you always feel better if somebody does bid higher than mm. you. But in that particular instance, that was five hundred thousand dollars. A lot. The first bid was so stupidly low; it was ridiculous. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. So, mm. but made a good story, of course. Mm. Yeah. I was able to to um, put forward our case in terms of why we'd done it. But I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, mm. that's sort of. So not, hopefully, it wasn't a five hundred thousand dollar property, and you bid it a million dollars <laughs> or something. I'm <laughs> sure. No, no, it was significantly more than the eastern suburbs. Maybe of another zero. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of an expensive property. It was pretty bullish, and it was yeah. very, very. Mm gutsy but the reality mm. was our pricing showed that that thing could have gone over our client's budget mm. yeah. so that's one of the other reasons right. why we, we did that one big shot and see if we get it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I do think you know and we do see and have seen at times where a conservative valuer will undervalue even a you know well-bought yeah. property at auction or a well-bought mm, yeah. property in private sale you know and it is a risk and it can happen and then we'll hunt down the um, comparable sales yeah. and provide yeah. them. We train our um, strategic mortgage brokers to, if they think, particularly if you're doing a refinance and the LVR is yeah. tight to 80%, yeah. um, then find comparables in advance and actually proactively yeah. provide them to the valuer mm. beforehand uh, because, yeah, they, they'd prefer not to have to um, change evaluation. It's yeah. a really good point. I got caught out with this recently. Unfortunately, the, it was all okay. Um, however, uh, we had a valuation on a property and a client was doing a refinance of that one, releasing the equity, and then had a pre-approval to buy a future home. Um, but the cash wasn't released. It was a pre-approval. Now, that mm. um, for the refinance, that pre-approval had expired and then when he finally did purchase a home, the bank went and revalued his home and got a, we got a really bad valuation on the home. Mm. So because it, it was a refinance, yeah. it's up to the valuer to, to basically value whatever they think it's worth. Yeah. Um, and that value went in really low on the refinance and he didn't have enough equity now yeah. to do the purchase. Now, we, we ended up getting there. We got the valuation, forward it back up, but it was a really testing time because yeah. the client's, didn't, could potentially not have enough money to settle on the new purchase. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty horrible. And so we we still had enough buffers in that situation, but it is a risk for sometimes people. If they think they're going to go and buy an investment property and use the equity in the home, my advice is get the equity out first if you can. Yep. In this situation, that bank wouldn't do mm. that. They had to wait for the purchase mm. and then they revalued the home. So you've got to be really careful with refinances because generally yep. speaking, the valuations do always come in low. Tricky. The value, valuations are an interesting thing. I bought a property for myself some years back and it had actually been sold a year prior. So I bought it in 2014. So obviously the market was pretty buoyant. It had been sold a year, pretty much bang on a year earlier. The people that bought it a year earlier did bugger all with it, but what they tried to get through, they wanted to basically demolish it, subdivide it and put two pair of you know, duplexes on there. The stupid thing is, it's a it's a conservation area. There's never in a million years where they're going to be able to do this. So they obviously went ahead and bought this thing, making all these sorts of assumptions. Yeah, yeah, we'll get yeah. this, we'll get this. We're going to become developers. Realised with a fair amount of cost spent, I guess, trying to get it through council and and. I mean, they did. They submitted plans. Oh, <laughs> it was just really? like never in a million years were you going to get these mm. this approved. Um, and so then they went, well, we're not going to become property developers with this, this property, so we'll put it back on the market. We'll put it on the market. So they took it up, they put it on the market, some crazy price, did not sell at auction, sat there languishing, and finally an agent's called me and said, oh, look, we've got a client for this. They finally dropped their price expectations. I went through it and went, oh, <laughs> I actually what I'm renovating at the moment. Um, 
oh, this is interesting for me. But the thing is I pay, now I can't try to remember exactly what they paid for. I pay 1.3 and I priced it up and I, and that's pretty much where it bang it sack at the time. Um, I think they paid maybe 1.2 for it maybe. Yeah. Um, so, and there was, you know, a fair amount, there was quite a lot of movement in the prices at that time. So that was pretty much bang on. So it was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm prepared to pay that money. The value comes through. He values it at less than I paid. I've got comps. Oh, right. You know, right. I, I always give the comps anyway myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got comps because I've done my own research yeah. in terms of before buying this thing. Yeah. Um, You've got to be careful with that as a strategy, though. Giving the value. I know sometimes they can get their back up. That is true. Um, yeah. The, you need yeah. to be very careful to say, I'm not telling you I'm how not to try, do your job. Exactly. You're, I'm not you're the expert. <laughs> you just thought I'd let you know this yeah. is the research I've Some done. Thoughts. There you go. Knock yourself if out. If you think it's within a bull's yeah. roar. <laughs> yeah. no, that might help you. It may yeah. not. Don't worry. Yeah. Anyway, so, but the thing was, the value I had been the same value I had gone through a year earlier when these mm. guys bought. Yeah. And he had put, I think, 1.1 on it, quite a lot less mm. than even what the, the first lot paid for it. Mm. He put exactly the same amount of money on the valuation when I bought it. Now, mm. luckily, luckily I wasn't selling close to the winner. It didn't matter. Mm. But the thing was, his argument was, well, they paid too much when they bought it a year earlier and I stand behind my oh. valuation then. Mm. And it's like, hang on a minute, two people have paid more than you valued it a year ago. And his his ego got so in the way, and it was like, oh. Look, so in that situation, you did you get the high valuation and put on it? No, it didn't matter because I, no. I wasn't. Mm. See, I wasn't fight, relying it was, on it. It wasn't a fight. Um, sometimes though, the risk is that the valuer won't play ball mm. and yeah. will stick to their guns because mm. then the day for them to increase the valuation, they've got to admit that they were wrong. Well, he had to admit he was wrong twice. Yes, and he's not going <laughs> to do that. And you know, it was just nuts. So I could not, not believe that. that he actually spoke up and said that. You know, Want someone to try and get it valued in five years' time and see if he's <laughs> moved by then. Yeah, he still goes, no, I but valued it in 2012 and it was, it was <laughs> or 2013, it was 1.1 and it's mm-hmm. still worth 1.1. Now, in the last couple of years we've had the um, Royal Commission and that sent shockwaves through the, the mortgage industry. Yep. Um, can you give us, like, our listeners a bit of an understanding of where we are at now and how access to credit is and some of the changes that APRA are doing and just a bit more of a... An understanding because I think a lot of it's lost in the papers and it's kind of overemphasized how bad it potentially is. So what where the market sits now or Yeah, just what's... a bit of a backstory of what happened in the Royal Commission as well, because you know, I, I think mm. people thought it was just went just couldn't get a loan, but if people were still getting loans. So I guess yeah. it's probably just of understanding of what the banks are thinking now. Well, I think um the major changes through that period were the banks tightened up significantly. They got really worried that the Household Expenditure Measurement Benchmark, otherwise known as HEM, uh, would not suffice. And so all the banks started requiring living expenses uh, to be detailed. And it started with three items to five items. Now it's 12 items for most lenders. And that uh, forensic look at what you've spent over the last generally only one to three months mm. Um was uh, really pulled back people's borrowing capacity. And then also the APRA uh, benchmark assessment rate was uh, increased up to 7.25%. There are also restrictions uh, on interest-only loans. Uh, They didn't want investment loans to grow at faster than 10%. So there are all kinds of restrictions that were... 
um, put in place by the macro prudential regulators, but also put in place by the banks because they were, to quote your books, uh, I think scared shitless. Um, <laughs> um, so, so lending really did tighten up, but now we've seen it open up, mm. and you know Westpac. Mm won their case against ASIC, yeah. that the HEM is, re- is is fair and reasonable and people will cut back on discretionary spending to mm-hmm. keep their home mm. and pay off, pay their mortgages. Uh, the benchmark assessment rate, which was 772.5, is now, you know, coming right down to 1.5%. Uh, is that right? 1.5% uh, above the interest uh, rate 2. or 5. minimum. Sorry, 2.5 or... Um, 5%, 5.5%. Exactly right, yeah. As, as, you know, so if some people now could be assessed at 5.5% as opposed to 7.25%, yeah, huge difference. Mm. And so as soon as that, I mean, you know, we've had the election, we've had the drop in interest rates, you know, people have now started to suggest the property market could rise, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, by 10% mm. in this 12 mm. months. As soon as the APRA changes came through, I thought we could get a and, and wrote at the time a 5% bounce even just in the back half of this year mm. and it's starting to flow through. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different factors. but No, I think that's yeah. perfect I think that's because it's good mm. because I think that, you know, that's reality is was last year was a bit tough with the Royal Commission and APRA in there. Mm. All the banks were really worried about this Westpac case. I mean, it's a bit interesting, ASIC, um, decided yesterday to appeal Westpac um, in court <laughs> and um, at the last minute, you know, you've got a certain amount of days to appeal and at the 11th hour. Um, ASIC really? Did, yeah. yeah. Uh, so ASIC aren't going to let it die. They're going to go back to the courts. And so that's something that um, we thought was solved, but yes. it's just come back that it isn't been solved yet. And so that's something that's, you know, we're not sure, but we yeah. did think that, you know, till yesterday. Mm. Um and I think, you know, going forward, though, that, you know, the banks are kind of back lending money, et cetera. And I think you're right. Like it's it's what were some of the, the perception change, though, with your clients over since the election and before the election? Um, what have you noticed in terms of their overall confidence and their overall, you know, desire to get into the market? Have you seen a big shift? Um, and do you think that, you know, yeah, things have changed? Absolutely. Very big shift. And things have changed. And usually... In the beginning of the change, uh, the pace is slower and speeds up over time. Mm. But it feels like the shift, it, it this shift has moved faster mm. than any I can remember. What what yeah. do you two think? Oh, overnight. I mean, yeah. when you get the election result, which yeah. surprised everybody, mm. um, you know, the anecdotally from agents were saying that, like, even the midweek inspections on the Wednesday, we just there were queues. Yeah. You go figure. And then, you know, our inquiry. Mind you, this year has been a lot stronger um, for our inquiry rate in the business anyway. Yeah. yeah. But we certainly uh, registered an enormous change in positivity. Yeah. Um, and we could see that also just in terms of auction attendance. All of a sudden you had registration or auction just went, and, and that's a big, you know, there's auction clearance rates yes. is one thing, but we yes. we watch people register at auction. Yeah. And so when you got an, an auction where a good auction was mm. four people registering yeah. in the in the worst of it, yeah. um, same type of property might get 12 people registering now. Yeah. So it's three times the amount of people. Can't that's four people mm. wanting the same property, right? Mm. Yeah. So only one of them is going to get that property. Mm. Yeah. So if that property sells, there's 11 others that are mm. 
looking for other properties. And so, and there's not no this properties is on the almost market. Almost overnight, almost yeah. overnight, we we actually saw the numbers registering at auctions yep. markedly different. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose probably the main catalyst we we know it was the election, but it was also the policies were going to have such mm. an impact yes. on residential property. And that party who was expected to win didn't win. But the bizarre thing about that, really, I mean, we're all sheep, you know, <laughs> that in reality, if we were all so convinced, which we were, that Labor were going to get in, that party that shall remain nameless, um, <laughs> we're all convinced of it. You know, I would go and give talks on negative gearing, as we all know. I was very, very, you know, mad about the whole policy. And, um, you know, I ask, who thinks you know, Liberal are going to win the election. Nobody would put their hand up. Then you can see yeah. a couple of people put their hand and go, oh, but that's wishful thinking. I actually don't think that they will, they will at all. I hope that they will. Yeah. Um, so that happened to, and obviously that was the, the 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 rooms that I was talking to in terms of obviously property-interested people. But um, the very fact that we were all so certain, I mean, Shorten looked pretty certain he was going mm. to win too, you know. Um, bookies were certain too, though. The bookies were certain. Yeah. Everyone was certain except the individual electors, but mm. everyone was certain that they were going to win. Mm. Why weren't people buying property beforehand, particularly investors? Well, that I don't, do not understand because that was the time to buy the market. It was all time, you know, low and it, we were looking at policy changes that was going to make a massive difference to their financial position, whether negative gearing or not, mm. capital gains tax. You know what I mean? So there were all these things it's difficult to be courageous mm. and go against the grain for a, such a huge payout. And yeah. we were saying to our clients, we think you should be buying now mm. because either way everyone's going to get into the market after the election exactly. because they're going to want established property yep. before negative gearing ends or if the Liberal yep. Party wins, they're going to get into the election as well, exactly. uh, get into the market like, as yeah. well. But, yeah, but think, to, you can't pay people <laughs> to actually take good advice under those circumstances. Yeah, and it was, it was hard because, you know, there yeah. was a few few avenues to it. It wasn't um, mm. a case of, and it was also the other side. People were thinking, should I sell? You know, like some people have got properties that would would have been absolutely smashed if negative gearing came in. No, mm. the removal of negative gearing, especially people who've got like cookie cutter apartments. And I think the biggest saviour of the the newer style apartments is that negative gearing hasn't gone, because um, yep. the build quality issues now mm. has been gone through the roof. And the only reason someone's going to buy these newer apartments are investors that don't know what they're doing and they're thinking about the tax write-off they can get through negative gearing. Mm. Yep. And if they couldn't, who was going to buy these apartments? And yeah. so, you know, we would have seen catastrophic falls to new apartments. Which, if, well, when you say new, it's like one year old. or One, one to 20 one, years old. One week old, really, because yeah. at the end of the day, the minute it gets sold the second time, it's no longer going to be eligible. So yeah, yeah. they have two apartments side by side, one brand new, one... A week old. No <laughs> one was going to buy, buy it after no. as a secondary buyer. Yeah, no. no. It, was a, it was a crazy policy. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, David, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Uh, yes, I do. I've I've touched on it a little bit already. It's, it's the it's the one where you buy a home and you think you will upgrade into the future, and you would like to optimize your ability to keep that home. And if you uh, pay, you know, counterintuitively, but if you put all your surplus cash into the mortgage, 
rather than into the offset account. Mm. So, yeah, you can still pay minimum principal and interest on the loan but then put every surplus dollar into your offset mm. account. Well, you then are still reducing the interest payable on that property but when it becomes an investment property, you're able to optimise your tax deductions yeah. because you haven't paid down the loan your offset account, you have all this money that then can go towards the future home, so you have less interest, non-deductible interest on the future home. And, uh, you know, that that's a very common one. There's certainly more mortgage brokers are becoming aware of mm. this uh, and people are becoming aware of this strategy, but I thought I'd just uh, make that the, the, the dumbo. Old, the poor old dumbo <laughs> is the person that thought they were doing the right thing, the conservative thing, the sensible thing in yeah. paying down debt but not Absolutely. actually realising the ultimate cost of that in terms of not being able to deduct it if they want to keep that property and they upgrade. I know it's so it's a it's a common dumbo. That's a really sad mm. dumbo in my view. Absolutely. Because a lot of dumbos are through foolishness and through wishful thinking and through, you know, really ill thought out stuff. Whereas this mm. is actually a dumbo that gets created through trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, and that's it. And offset accounts, I mean, a lot of people don't really know why an offset account is so ma- amazing, really. And it's yeah. one of the most Amazing mm. tools you can use. Um, but I didn't know about it really when I was a you know joined before I joined property planning. I was a financial advisor, but I didn't really understand all the power of structuring mm. loans using offset accounts. Um, and most financial advisors don't really because they haven't really got involved in the mortgage strategy yeah. part. It's not part that planners yeah. are trained on. They're trained on insurance. They're trained mm. on super. They're trained on maybe buying mm. some shares but they don't get trained on property and they don't get trained yeah. on mortgage strategy. So, mm. you know, a good broker will educate you on that, but, you know, offset accounts, that's just amazing. Yeah. Um, we didn't really go there too much. Well, thank you again for joining us, David. That's been a really interesting conversation. And for the listeners who might want to pick up a copy of your book that we mentioned in the introduction, we will include the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it's been fantastic, time. guys. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Just a little bit I thought we could add to that whole discussion around whether it's best to buy first or sell first. Now, there's absolute rule of thumb that I have for this one, and it is you have to choose the thing that's hardest and do that first. So we did talk about that. We did talk about the fact that in a buyer's market, it's hard to sell a property. Right? In a seller's market, it's hard to buy a property. So it goes with the risk. So whatever is the hardest is usually where the risk lies. So if you are going to find it easy to find the next property, then the risk lies with you selling and selling within a reasonable time frame and selling for the right price. So then you've got to get that out of the way first. So that's really the litmus test. What is going to be the hardest thing? Do that first. Now, there's only one proviso when this doesn't apply, and that is when you actually physically can't get the finance to buy first. So there are times, for instance, when you're retiring and you're downsizing, and I'm sure you can attest to this, that you are going to find it difficult to get bridging finance or where, you know, there's a massive risk involved in getting bridging finance or the cost is going to be prohibitive. So there are certain circumstances where you wouldn't want to do that in which you're going to be in a situation where you have to sell first. But generally speaking, you do not want to be out of the market if it is a rising market and if you are in a position when you can, where you can bridge for a little while. The other thing that you can do as well is request longer settlements. So you can actually, when you're selling your property, you can ask your solicitor to put a three-month settlement on the contract 
Now, any serious buyer that wants a shorter settlement can request differently and it's up to you whether you negotiate that or not. And likewise, when you go to buy, you can actually ask for a longer settlement as well. You won't always get it, but it certainly doesn't hurt to ask the question. Please join us for our next episode when we interview a real estate agent and author, Jeff Grist. Jeff has been the author of a few books, mostly helping vendors choose agents and understand the sales process. One book has the promise that uh, vendors will sell above market. So as a buyer, we want to understand how do agents get buyers to pay above market price? Now you need to tune in with us next week to find out. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.